and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly On Leadership podcast, the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership, both in audio and video format. I'm your host, Scott Miller, and I'm privileged to serve as your moderator each week, where today we are talking with a renowned psychologist as part of our series broadcast live from the MGM Grand Hotel here in Las Vegas as part of our contribution to YPO's annual conference, Young President's Organization. And we've had some great interviews this week culminated today by our guests that I'll introduce in just a moment. Now, most of you know I've been the host here for four years with 200 and close to 20 episodes. And from the first 100 episodes, I curated a new book from HarperCollins called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, where I share a single insight from 30 of my most influential guests. And the book has done extraordinarily well. Think of it as chicken soup for the leadership soul and Master Mentors Volume 2 is now available on pre-order. Comes out in October with 30 new mentors, 30 new insights, again, from guests on the podcast. And you never know, maybe today's guest will be willing to be featured in Volume 3. In fact, today we have the incomparable author, the psychologist, Dr. Nicole LaPera, whose recent book, How to Do the Work, has, get this, over 9,000 reviews on Amazon, I think my book's just passed nine reviews to give you some sense for the gravity and resonance of her work. The book, again, is How to Do the Work. Recognize your patterns, heal from your past, and create yourself. The psychologist and author, Dr. Nicole LaPera, is joining us today. Nicole, welcome from Arizona. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. I'm honored. So you are a holistic psychologist. You've written a book called How to Do the Work, focused really on the specialization in connecting between mind, body, and soul. This is going to be a very rich discussion today, not just in the applicability of our professional lives as leaders, as colleagues, but also as human beings, as parents, as people suffering from traumatic instances, from people with mental health issues, and just people like me that deny we've had either and probably need to do the work ourselves. Now, I have three young sons, so I probably had traumatic events, but those aren't necessarily trauma. We'll get into that in just a few moments. No, honestly, our boys are great, and we've been very blessed with um, a very healthy life. Nicole, would you do me the service and our listeners the, the favor of maybe winding back a little bit, rewinding, and talking about your journey, perhaps academically, professionally, and what led you to write this phenom book that continues to be one of the best-selling books worldwide on Amazon and other platforms. Talk about how you came to write How to Do the Work. Absolutely. So my journey, of course, as many of ours, goes way back in time. Um, I think quite intuitively, I was always really curious about other people, about you know what made their minds or them think or them express the way they are, what made me similar to the people that I was seeing, and of course, what would made me dissimilar. So from that kind of intuitive curiosity before really long, you would have heard me talking about, I'm gonna go be a psychologist, of course. My imagining was that's the profession where we help people understand their minds and of course overcome any emotional issues that they might struggle with. And on the human side of things, um, I had a very intimate relationship with anxiety. I was quite literally the little girl afraid of the world and carried that with me through different treatments of my own into my adulthood. So flash forward a lot of time, I got my PhD in clinical psychology from the new school in New York City. I moved to Philadelphia where I was originally from. I opened up my practice. Um, Very gratefully, it was pretty successful pretty quickly, meaning I had clients that would come see me week after week, month after month, ordering year after year. 
And what I started to see and feel, Scott, was a really deep uh, disempowerment. Because what I started to observe was a pattern in not only my own personal life and my friends' lives, but in the clients that I was you know, tasked with helping them heal, change, feel better. And what the pattern was that I kept seeing and hearing about was we all felt stuck. We had incredible amounts, and the clients I would work with would have incredible amounts of insight. Like, I understand my problem. I might even know exactly where it came from. I might even have a plan of action to create change, yet... I'm still stuck and I'm looping through, again, patterns that don't serve me. So my journey into holistic work really began from that low point, from me wondering, why isn't this old model working? Um, why isn't changing our thoughts about things enough? And what I came to realize is that, in my opinion, not only was my work, but the field entirely, like you spoke yourself, was leaving out a whole part of the equation, which is that we're a human living in a body. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why our, our bodies and our subconscious mind, I really shifted my focus onto that deeper part of our mind that really carries all of the habits and patterns that don't serve us. So becoming a holistic psychologist for me meant really understanding what are, what are the driving forces between, you know, uh, underneath, I should say, these patterns that are keeping us stuck and seeking to understand that. And of course, then seeking to give clients and other humans the tools to create change. Nicole, a bit of a sidebar. Will you remind our listeners and viewers what the main differences are between someone who becomes a psychiatrist and someone chooses to become a psychologist and why they typically choose those paths? Absolutely. So psychiatrist is a technically a medically trained doctor. You go through medical school. Um, really surprisingly, you get very limited uh, training around the application of therapy. A lot of the times it's really focused on the pharmacological or medication approach. Knowing for me that I was very interested in doing the therapy model, which is the path you go down when you become a therapist or other kind of clinical professional, um, that's what I was really interested in. So I walked down that path of having, I think traditionally what we think of the treatment room, the couch where you go in and essentially you talk and understand your problems. Again, with psychiatrists being the medical model, we address the underlying symptom through usually a biological or a pharmacological approach. Beautifully said. And to that point, what's the difference between a psychologist and to your point, a holistic psychologist? Absolutely. And my hope is that actually the field um, embraces this holistic model into the future as what a psychologist is, because quite traditionally, um, what a psychologist typically works with is the mind, um, the gold standard, as we call it, meaning what most of us when we come through the clinical programs, the type of therapy most of us are trained in is something that's known as cognitive behavioral therapy, with really simplified the belief is if we change the way we're thinking, we then change the way we feel and the way we behave. Now, of course, I, I wrote a whole chapter in my, in my book, How to Do the Work, about the power of belief, the power of the mind, though, again, the mind we now know, or our brain, that's our organ of the mind, is connected to a physiological body. So a holistic psychologist, again, really um, encompasses the whole being, mind, body, soul, and the fact that our our being, my individual, is connected to the world, to something greater. And again, the, the older model of psychology really kind of focuses us from the, the top up as opposed to the whole person. Nicole, when I think of the concept of self-healing, my mind goes to Christian scientists, respectfully, right? And people that are trained <laughs> to heal themselves or through perhaps, you know, a, 
whatever that role is that's within that, that faith organization. Can you kind of define for us what self-healing means? Self-healing is, is really self-empowerment. It's understanding you know, that we are an individual that's in participation on our healing journey. And what I mean when I say this is I see a pattern. I see this in myself. Um, where most of us, by the time we're adults, we really don't feel empowered. Um, again, a lot of this is because of our past conditioning, simply the environments that we're raised in. We become really habitual. And if we're not conscious, and most of us aren't conscious, up to 95%, I think is the latest statistic of our day, we're living very reactively, very habitually. Um, and we're not really kind of empowering ourselves to make choices. So we, we do feel at the whim of um, the world around us. So when my model, when I speak of self-healing, that's really understanding that we are a self. There is a reason for why we're stuck in the same patterns that we are. Though again, the goal is to empower ourselves, to become conscious, to explore what some of those patterns might be, knowing that likely there is an underlying cause. That's really a focus of not only the holistic model, but the self-healing model is that we're not damaged. We're not broken individuals like a lot of us believe we are. If we're struggling in life, typically, again, it's the result of past experiences that we had. So when I talk about self-healing, again, it's becoming part of that equation, understanding that our past did affect us and now empowering ourselves to find the tools, to find the modality, to find the way of working that works for each of us. It's really a journey of self-empowerment. Nicole, the book is so well titled, How to Do the Work. We don't have hours sent here to figure that out. Buy the book to our audience's delight and read it. 9,000 reviews on Amazon. Congratulations on the incomparable success of your work, your masterpiece. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, teach us how to do the work. What, what, have you, what have you got in a couple of minutes that might be broadly helpful to people who perhaps, talk to people like me that perhaps I should be in therapy, but as a, I think a person with fairly reasonably strong mental health, but three young boys under the age of 12, so they're trying, trying their best to circumvent that. How, how do we identify kind of what are our past traumas and our, and our challenges, and what are some big insights you have for us on how to do the work? So doing the work, and the reason why the book is titled How to Do the Work, it's really kind of harnessing the the application of a concept. And what that means is I think a lot of us have heard of some of the things that I might share in just a second, like consciousness, like ego, like, again, the past experiences that are keeping us stuck. Though until we begin to embody a new choice, we can't actually create change. Because going back to those clients that I used to see, um, what would happen when we had those really insightful moments where we were able to unpack right, the underlying reason for this behavior and come up with a new plan of action, all of that is happening typically in a different, actually cognitive or consciousness state, in a state of consciousness, where we're able to be an observer of ourself. And why that's so incredibly important is because in that space, we actually give ourselves the, the opportunity to begin to make a new choice. And here's where the slippage happens. All of this insight happened in conscious awareness, and then my client would go and leave and find themselves back in their same environment, in their same relationship, in their same autopilot, and before you know it, doing the same old things that didn't 
serve them. So how to do the work is really kind of harnessing the reality that to make change, we have to begin to make new choices. And the way we begin to make new choices is we build the most foundational practice of any transformation journey, which is learning how to be conscious more than 5% of the time, not allowing that autopilot to dictate. Because if we do, again, we're going to be stuck. We're going to get more of the same. So how do I become conscious? I tune into here to now. I learn how to create separation between the thoughts in my mind that are, co that are coloring the emotional reactions in my body and then my reactivity in the outer world. When I'm conscious, how do I begin to know kind of where and why I'm stuck? I begin to observe myself. I can become an observer of those old patterns and at the same time create space. It's a two-part process. I observe the things that don't serve me and in this newly created space, I make a new choice. The more I consistently string together new choices, the more I create change. So I'm guessing you either have an endless list of dinner party invitations or none because you would be fascinating to have at dinner, but I think <laughs> you probably would be, um, you know, quote, psychoanalyzing people. What's it like to be in a relationship with you on the other side? <laughs> I think it's, in a lot of ways, it's so funny. I, I hear this often, like, how are you? Are you this super, super analytical individual? And actually, Scott, what it's like to be in a relationship with me is to be in a relationship with any other human. Because I, we all have our human moments. I have all of my autopilot, all of the programs, all of the reactivity, all of the things that don't serve me. Um, and if I'm not conscious, I become a living reaction in that same way. Um, and they're actually, I could make a case that we can become stuck, and a lot of us do, when we get stuck in that hyper-analyzation, where I'm always thinking about thinking about thinking about thinking, that's not actually, again, consciousness. Consciousness is seeing that I have thoughts, we all have thoughts all of the time, right? And then we have a choice. How much attention are we giving to our thoughts? And another form or a common form of distraction that many of us have is hyperanalyzing, always kind of picking apart and dissecting our thinking. In the same way, we're disconnected. We're still caught in our mind and we're not being that conscious observer of our mind, if that makes sense. It does. Nicole, it feels like this genre of book is very much in vogue right now. I'm, I'm Bessel van der Kolk's book around the, mm -hmm. about trauma healing, Lori Gottlieb's book, she's coming on later today. It feels like there's a rise of comfortability and talking about mental health and healing and psychiatry and psychology. Do you think this is here to stay? Do you think it's a generational wave? Is it just a, a fad? You're not gonna call your own book a fad by any stretch? <laughs> Why do you think these books are so prevalent and they're so well read and there's so much of society now willing to talk freely about what were taboo topics in my generation? I think that it's coming from the reality of, of what society you know, is living. Um, I think it's very clear that a lot of us aren't feeling connected, aren't feeling fulfilled, let alone are having or are struggling with, you know, symptoms that are debilitating. And, and I think that it's just come to the surface now that uh, most of us humans aren't living in a very connected, balanced, peaceful way. Um, and I saw this very quickly when I started to, you know, think about my holistic journey. I was on my journey myself and I was, you know, really feeling and passionate that I wanted to begin to talk about my journey and what was helping me, these consciousness tools, these, you know, holistic, including my body. And I was beginning to see social media online as being an outlet for that. 
Um, you know, obviously there was a part of me that was unsure. What will people think of me sharing my story as a psychologist? All I had been taught up until then was how we shouldn't be a human. We shouldn't share our own struggles. For me, it was so important to give myself a platform for a voice without really any expectation of what the reception would be, though I was met, Scott, with an overwhelming reception of resonance, meaning people from around the world were beginning to see themselves in parts of my journey. We're beginning to come to the same awarenesses and use the same tools, regardless of what circumstance or what environment you were living on and create change. So I saw this, what you're seeing in terms of all of these books being very prolific. I was seeing the same in the conversations that were wanting to be had and that were now being had on the online space. And again, I think it's, we've come to a, a place as humanity where there's a lot of mismatch again between our deepest needs and how we're living, whether or not it's because of our conditioning, our very unnatural environments that some of us find ourselves living in. I think it's kind of like in our face now. And again, more and more people are, are finding a voice and we now are gifted. I mean, I know it's a, a gift and a curse depending on who you talk to, the whole social media world. Though this now becomes our point of access where we get to now hear other stories of other people. And I think what you're defining is a, a mass awakening of a sort where we are very much hungry and looking for this information, whether it's on your social media platform or through these amazing books that are now really um, in the mainstream eye. Nicole, you wrote a section in the book you called Trauma Bonds. And when I read it, I kind of took a breath in. <laughs> Again, as a spouse and parent of three young boys, you talk about do the work, identify your trauma bonds, having a parent figure who denies your reality, having a parent figure who does not see or hear you, having a parent figure who vicariously lives through you or molds and shapes you, having a parent figure who does not model boundaries, having a parent figure who is overly focused on appearance, and finally having a parent figure who cannot regulate their emotions. Will you kind of openly speak to this concept of trauma bonds and how important it is for us to understand the roles our parents had in our lives? And I'm guessing for most of us, we think they were well-intended, but they were humans. I mean, like when I read this, I'm very focused on appearance with myself and my boys, and I don't always regulate my emotions very well, and I don't always model boundaries, and I'm not sure I see them. And my, holy dynamo, <laughs> fix yeah. me. Heal me. Well, you're speaking, you're speaking, Scott, to, to the reality. And you said it very beautifully yourself. We are humans raising other humans. And we are all impacted by our earliest environments because we're in a developmental state of dependency. A human infant, quite literally, can't survive on their own. They need a caregiver of sorts to sustain physical life. And then, of course, we have a whole spectrum in terms of what did, what did that caregiver look like, right? How responsive were they and how capable were they of identifying and meeting someone else's needs outside of themselves? With the reality being, the large majority of us, and most of us, I would even say all of us, have very well-intentioned, well-meaning parent figures. However, again, limited by what they were taught, what was modeled to them. And in all of those definitions of different tripes, types of what I would call trauma. Now, again, as a disclaimer, this doesn't mean the one off when you become distracted by appearance because it's a big day. This is when the climate is consistently 
focused on appearance. It's consistently invalidating realities. It's consistently highly emotional reactive or without boundaries. What happens is as a dependent, very attuned infant, we modify ourselves. We figure out how to continue to have that caregiver meet our needs. And what happens when we don't have someone showing up with space? This, the concept that I heard in everything that you just read in all of those different examples of trauma is there's no space for me to be me. There's no space for my reality, for my feelings, for my thoughts, for my boundaries as a child. And when there's no space for me because I can't leave the system, I need these humans, I adapt, I modify. And this is where we begin to wear masks, suppress emotions, show up in service of others, meaning play a role. I become the caretaker. I become the caregiver, right? And we carry then those patterns into adulthood. A lot of the times not even realizing that we had modified ourselves at that very early time, because again, nothing hugely bad happened. We didn't have an experience of severe neglect or severe abuse. I'm speaking to all of those people again, who didn't maybe have that in their environment yet again are still suppressing modifying not again living in full self-expression is this an intervention did my wife put you up to this interview because <laughs> i feel like i might need to do the work actually you know levity aside i actually really resonated with what you just said as you were describing some of those roles i thought well yeah i did that and i wonder why i did that and i turned myself into that and i wonder i mean um, I need to do the work. Uh, Nicole, your book is one of the best-selling books in print. Your social media has more commas than my 401k. Did you know you were going to become famous? I mean, you are a celebrity. Did you know that this would be your trajectory? Scott, if I knew it, I probably would have went running and screaming. Um, so yeah. there's a part of my own you know, past experience. I'm joking when I say that, though, in all seriousness. The short answer is no. Um, and the short answer is that there is a discomfort actually for me in being as visible as I am. Um, there was again, a part of me that suppressed, that squashed that for many different reasons, usually based on fear. I'm so worried about what someone might think of me. If I express these ideas, if I express these thoughts, if I am who I am, that I modified, that I suppressed, that I became, you know, kind of a, a distant person from even myself because in that acknowledgement, in being seen, there's a discomfort. Anything that we're unfamiliar with, we feel uncomfortable around. So jokes aside, um, again, when I went online, it was more for an exercise in my own healing journey, knowing that I filtered my truth. I thought, okay, this might be the one space where I can begin to more safely speak my truth. Though being seen, I guess, in this very global way, still in moments, is, is really, really uncomfortable. So no, I didn't expect this, though I understand it, again, through that lens of, this is the collective speaking. The reason why there's so many commas in this book, you know, is, is hitting so many people's bookshelves is because again, we're seeing so much of ourselves in this very universal experience. Nicole, thank you for your time today. I'm mindful of our time and there's hundreds of company presidents milling around and captivated watching you, probably having the horrifying self-awareness <laughs> experience that they too, in fact, need to do the work. Send us off with some inspiration. Like, what are some practical things that all of us can do to start to do the work, maybe to answer the key questions that we should be facing? I know it's a broad 
maybe um, unrealistic question, but of all the patients you've seen, of all the interviews you've done and questions you've been asked, what are some things that everybody could benefit from as they perhaps board a plane here from Vegas back to their company offices as leaders of organizations modeling the right behavior? Give us some practical next steps in life. So my practical next step I'm going to offer to anyone out there who is jokes aside, like, oh, geez, I do have to do the work. Um, I want to relieve the shame that comes along with acknowledging, you know, some of the habits and patterns, again, that don't serve us. The reason why I speak so readily and freely about myself and my journey is because what I have heard from, you know, clients, members of the self-healers community or really everyone is this secret belief that I'm broken, that this is something to be shameful of, that if my life isn't going the way I would like it to go, or if I'm struggling in any way, that it's because of something with me. So my parting words for everyone who is, you know, considering doing the work, maybe even picking up the book or considering or seeing the ways in which they are still stuck, there is no shame in that. Again, we are all impacted by the generations that came before us, which the inspirational piece of that is, we then continue to impact the generations that come after us. So you with your children, anytime we commit to showing up, the first step might be more consciously learning to tune into being present, to seeing these habits and patterns. Again, the ways that I'm showing up that aren't serving me, the impact of that is so far greater into the future that I think most of us can even see. So again, there is no shame in beginning to explore yourself in a new way and beginning to become conscious of the things in life that aren't serving you and beginning to question where they came from, how am I continuing to contribute to them and how can I create change? Relieving, for some of us, relieving ourselves of that shame that I'm not broken, that these patterns came from some place, usually a self-protective place. It was me being very adaptive, doing the thing that I, the best option I had at that time can relieve for some of us a lifelong of shame and then empower us to look toward a future that can be different, not only for ourselves, but for our children, for everyone who's a leader out there, for our organizations and for the legacies then that we leave behind. Nicole, recently we interviewed Deepak Chopra and he reminded me that there are human beings and there are human doings. Now, there aren't two more different people in the world than Scott Miller and Deepak Chopra, trust me. <laughs> and we know who the human being is and who the human doing is. But listening to you makes me think it's important for all of us, me, start with me, right, to think about what is the work that I need to do. Uh, what's next for you? You've written a book that is incomparable in terms of influence and thoughtfulness and impact and sales. And uh, can you share with us, you've only been out, it's been out for a year, I think. What, what's next on your horizon? Uh, so much is actually next on my horizon as a human, just continuing on in my own journey, um, which continues again to inform how I show up in the world. Um, I have a lot of ideas of, you know, communities that I want to create, courses that I want to create. I may or may not have a few book projects um, in, in the works in terms of creating. So ultimately, allowing myself and my healing and the healing that I continue to see in my global membership, the Self Healer Circle, each and every day, each and every month, to continue to inform the resources I put out there. And not only, of course, in the form of, you know, paid products like a book, like a, like a membership, like 
future courses, but also across all of the free platforms that I'm committed to. Um, I think that there is a real access problem, not only in terms of this information in, you know, I think of the community as being a global community. I'm not just working here, you know, with, with people living in the United States and really understanding that some of this information, you know, isn't readily available. Some of these tools and these communities of support aren't present in our physical communities and we don't have maybe the resources, the financial resources to access them. So always in my future is why I'm so committed to putting out this free content, to speaking about this in a way that's understandable and applicable no matter where you're living so that if you do, if you don't have the resources, you can still create very meaningful change, not only in your life, but again, in the community and the world around you. Are you still in private practice? Meaning, do you have any openings? <laughs> I am no longer seeing individual clients. So one of the reasons being that we opened, we shifted into the community healing model is really wanting to harness the power of healing in community. We are, humans need other humans. We need support um, and we need a safe space. So shifting from individual to this group model, you know, was really, again, harnessing, again, back to the start of this, the holistic model. We are not separate creatures. And if we don't have a safe space to begin to think about ourselves or explore ourselves in this new way, I think, again, some of us are really limited in how much we can change. So working in a community fashion is likely what I will always continue to do again because we are we are we are creatures who need other relationships. Dr. Nicole LaPera, the holistic psychologist who wrote the book How to Do the Work, Recognize Your Patterns, Heal from Your Past and Create Yourself. Thank you today for your generosity, the gift that is this book. I think every parent in America should be reading this book. Every leader of an organization should read your book to understand how they model these practices in their organizations. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so, so much, Scott, and everyone else who's out there listening. Thank you all. I don't use the word trauma lightly, but I'm a little traumatized as I realize the work that no doubt I have to do uh, as well. Thank you for joining us. And I'm not sure how we'll top this one, but we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.